Please turn in your Bibles to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9. And if any older kids are staying with us, there's red folders in the back with fill-in-the-blank sermon outlines on them. We've been going through the prophet Zechariah, God's word to his people as they return from exile and face an uncertain future, uncertain about where God is, what his plans are for them, how they stand before him, and what the future holds. And God has words of encouragement, exhortation, and even rebuke for his people through the prophet. And this morning we look at Zechariah, we'll be looking at all of chapter 9, but this morning for our reading I'm going to read verses 9 through 17. Zechariah 9 through se- verses 9 through 17, hear now the word of the Lord. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness. How great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. This is the word of the Lord. You know, my, uh, my son twice now has received as a gift, either for birthday or for Christmas, an ant farm. The fact that he's received them twice tells you how well we take care of an ant farm. But uh, the interesting thing about the ant farm, the first time we got it, it wasn't at all what I expected. I expected a whole big ant colony with a queen, and you could see how that whole hierarchy and structure works. But no, uh, when we order these, we get an ant farm with no queen. And you order the ants, and they arrive oddly in the mail, which I will never understand mailing insects to me. Uh, but you, they tell you very clearly this is a, this is a group of you know, two dozen or so worker ants. There's no queen among them. Which, once you put them in, I mean, they get to work, and they dig, and they build these tunnels, and they make, you know, it's just some really cool things. But it's just a little sad, because they, they have no purpose. They're not serving the queen. They're not doing anything. They're just digging holes. They're just busy. They're just going about their day, just trying to keep busy. And as I thought about that and looked at that in my son's room even just this past week, it, I did feel like it, it represented a little bit what was going on in Jerusalem in Zechariah's day. It was a kingdom without a king. They were busy. 
but without greater purpose. They were just trying to dig their tunnels, to build their walls, to set up their homes, to go about their day. They were busy, busy, busy with no king. The Lord wanted them to snap out of that zombie-like living and expect more, but that wasn't something they could do for themselves because unless they had a greater king calling them to a greater purpose, all they could expect out of their day was just the drudgery of just trying to get through from day to day. But the Lord himself was their king. And he was on his way to his people. That's the message of Zechariah chapter 9. It was a message to encourage and to inspire the people to make ready their hearts for the arrival of their king who was coming with victory, with victory bringing blessing and bringing reward. To the people of God today, even those of us in this room, that message still holds. The vision that God has for your life is not a vision of drudgery. It's not just getting by. It's not just seeing if you can build things up and just make it from day to day and take care of those basic things. But rather, God has a vision of joyful existence that responds to the victory of your king. And not only of his victory, but of his return to his people. The victory of God is not just some far-off victory that we can celebrate in as something that happened far away and has no bearing on us today. No, the victory is of a king who's coming back to us, bringing the spoils of victory, bringing us the benefits of what he has won. And the message here is that God's people share in the victory that God has won for them through Jesus Christ. We have seen part of his victory And we have experienced some of the spoils of that victory as His people today. And we look forward to the completing of His victory and to His full return. So in Zechariah, we see the spoils of victory that the King brings to His people. And the first thing we see is that He brings rescue. The first eight verses of this chapter, which I didn't read yet this morning, uh, they're a geographical picture, an odyssey, uh, going through the entire kingdoms to the north of Israel. The cities and kingdoms that Zechariah names in his prophecy uh, are unfamiliar to us, but they were well known to the people of Israel because they were these neighboring nations to the north, which is a big deal because 70 years earlier their destruction had come through the north and they had been taken into exile and had been dragged through these nations. And many of those nations had participated in their destruction or had mocked them for their destruction or had taken advantage of them in their weakness. And now Zechariah paints a picture of God as a great king returning by the same path that they had exited earlier in shame. But the path as he comes in is a war path. He's blazing through the nations on his way back to his people, on his way back to Jerusalem. You can almost see him as a a mighty king just knocking his enemies out of his way as he goes through the nations, uh, just intent on getting back to his people to rescue them. The encouraging message begins in verse 1. The Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. The prophecy begins with the encouragement that whatever is going on in the world, God is watching. He is aware. He knows what's happening to his people. He knows what's happening in the nations. And as we saw earlier in Zechariah, at the very back at the beginning, as we started to look at it, the question on the heart of the prophet, on the heart of the people was, God, don't you care? These nations that have done wrong, 
These nations that have lived in evil and gotten away with it. These nations that have prospered by taking advantage of our weakness. They're they're at rest. They're at peace. They're living happily. God, don't you care? Don't you see what's happening? And again and again through Zechariah, God encourages and comforts his people. I see. I know what's going on. And I'm not ignoring it. And now the prophecy shows God bringing rescue, sweeping through the north and knocking aside his enemies one by one. And as he returns, he overturns these nations uh, which represent the false hopes and false, um, false powers of these nations. In one example, he it describes the nation as having piled up wealth, silver, like dust and gold just everywhere, and God overturns their wealth that they've trusted in and conquers them. He moves on to another nation that has trusted in its great and strong, mighty king and army, and God just strips them bare of it and overturns the king. Another nation is violent and boasts of the horrible things that it's done and the power that it has, and they're dripping with the blood of victims, and God wipes them out and makes them a victim. It's a a crazy poetic picture of God coming in and every hope that the nations have that is not the true hope in the Lord. He wipes it out because their wealth won't save them. Their king won't save them. Their strength, their strategy, their armies won't save them. God is greater than all these things. And after sweeping through the north, he gets to his people in Jerusalem And verse 8 says it this way, Then I will encamp at my house, meaning Jerusalem, at his people, as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. God is not just coming in and destroying the threats of the day. He's setting up camp around his people to protect them in the days to come. That's how thorough the rescue of God is for his people. So that when the king reaches the city where his people are, they are to rejoice in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When a king would enter a city, His mode of transportation mattered greatly. It would be like the difference between showing up at a city in a tank or in a convertible. If a a leader shows up at a city in a tank, there's a pretty good chance he's there picking a fight. If he shows up in a convertible, exposed, no weapons, he's there for peace. And so in in the ancient Near East, in the times of Zechariah and his people, when a king would enter on a horse, it indicated he was there for battle. He was there to fight. He was there to conquer. Like Jesus in Revelation, we see uh, entering earth on a white horse. And he's coming for battle. He's coming to conquer his enemies. But when a king entered on a donkey, it said, I'm here for peace. Nobody ever rode a donkey into war. Your enemies would laugh at you. Okay, a donkey doesn't really cooperate when you're going into battle. And so the description here is of the king entering on a donkey because, because the battle has already been won. He can enter that way because there is peace. So Zechariah shows that the king, which is the Lord, is returning in peace because he has completed already 
the rescue his people. Now you may recognize this verse 9 as something applied to Jesus during his triumphal entry. He rode the donkey into Jerusalem and they quote this. Behold, your king is coming riding on a donkey because his followers recognized that that Jesus was the true king, which in, in Zechariah was the Lord. And they apply this to Jesus saying, look, this is the Lord entering Jerusalem because he's already won the victory. So what is the rescue that God brings in Jesus Christ? Now, our first inclination might be to imagine some sort of, um, you know, end times deliverance that God is here to sweep us out of earth in rescue. That's how God rescues us. And we're just trying to hang on until the cavalry gets here and and he sweeps us away and rescues us. Uh, Similar to what we read in Galatians chapter one, verse four, that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. He's going to snatch us up out of the evil world, and that is the rescue that he has for us. And so we read this image in Zechariah 9, and we imagine God sweeping through the nations and, and carrying us up to heaven to rescue us. And that, that is true, but that is incomplete. That is not a full picture of the rescue that is given to us in Jesus. Because according to Scripture, the rescue that Jesus brings, in one sense, has already taken place. In Colossians chapter 1, we see that He has delivered us, He has delivered, already delivered us from the domain of darkness, and has already transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The deliverance The pulling out of one kingdom and put into the new kingdom has already taken place in Jesus. Because behold, your real enemy might not be who you think. The real danger you face might not be what first comes to mind. Because we tend to think that our real enemy is the world. Or something in the world, some power in the world that threatens God's people. But in Matthew chapter 1, When the birth of Jesus is announced, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from what? From their sins. Jesus didn't come to save you from any nation or army or power or threat, except your own sin. That, that is the greatest threat you face. Now what if, what if the greatest threat you face is not a government or a political party or some cultural shift in a direction that you don't feel comfortable with or a hostile unbeliever or group of unbelievers that persecutes you or mocks you or makes life difficult for you? What if that is not the greatest threat facing you? What if the greatest threat is the sin that has held you captive and you are already rescued from that? That is the promise of God to you. The king has already arrived. Bringing peace because he's already won the battle. And therefore, what is the greatest threat that your neighbor, your family, your friends face if they are not in Christ? Is the greatest danger something out there? No, the greatest danger is something in their own heart. Now, how will that affect the way that you speak to them? 
How will that affect the way you care for them? How will that affect the way you minister to them? The greatest threat that faces them and their need of rescue is something that Jesus has already done. Point your heart towards that. Direct your friends, your neighbors, your family towards that. Because he brings rescue. The next thing we see that follows from the rescue is that he brings rest. In verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There is something abrupt about this when we read it in its context. Leading up to this, what has God's treatment of the nations been? What has it been describing? As I just explained to you, is he's coming through and he's wiping out the nations. He's overturning them. He's overthrowing them. It's, it's a position of conquest and, and, and violence and warfare. We saw how he sets up camp around his people to protect them from the nations that would come in and wage war. It was a picture of God's people in Jerusalem as an island of peace and safety in the midst of the turmoil and chaos of the wars around them. All the world was violent, but God kept his people safe. But God's vision and God's plan doesn't end there. It begins there. It begins with the safety and the well-being of his people. He brings rescue to his people, but then he brings rest. And that extends beyond the borders of his people. As we sang already this morning, crown him the Lord of peace, whose power a scepter sways from pole to pole that wars may cease, absorbed in prayers and praise. That is God's vision for the world, for a world of war and of violence, a world of oppression and fear. He brings rest. And the victory of God is not complete until he cuts off the battle bow and speaks peace to the nations. Now, clearly, that's not the state we find the world in right now, is it? No one looks around or checks their news feed, listens to the news, reads the paper, and says, what a peaceful world we live in. No. And that's because the battle isn't over yet. But remember, remember what the real fight is about. Because even as I say, we live in a world of warfare and violence and unrest, and there's no peace I imagine the images in your head are, are things going on in Ukraine or things going on in other nations or things going on even in the streets of the U.S. where there is violence and death and unrest and mourning. And those things are horrible and God wants to put an end to those things. But those, brothers and sisters, those are the symptoms of the real problem. Those are the fruits of a deeper root what is the real fight about that Jesus has come to win? He came to deliver us from the danger behind every danger, from the evil behind every evil. He came to do battle with sin itself. And so if there is to be peace to the nations, he has to defeat sin. Not just rescue us from it. Not just pluck us up and take us away. He has to defeat it. Whose power a scepter sways from pole to pole that wars may cease, absorbed in prayers and praise. And so Zechariah describes how this will happen. 
the king himself goes into battle in verse 14. The Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. This is not a battle that we can fight for ourselves. It's been a while since I quoted from the Lord of the Rings, so I feel like I'm overdue. There's a scene where the, the, the good guys, the, the, the fellowship of the ring, the good guys are, are trapped deep in a cave and they're trying to escape and blocking between them and their way out is this unspeakable evil creature. Huge and mighty and fiery and powerful and bent on destroying them. And this, this fellowship contains some very brave warriors who have fought incredible beasts and monsters and they reach for their sword and their axe and their bow and they, you know, they're, they're frightened but they are ready to fight. They are bold and prepared to go in and the leader of their fellowship who, who knows what they face says, this foe is beyond any of you. Run, run. He says, look, you, none of you, brave and mighty as you are, none of you is able to match the enemy that we face. And then he, the leader, Gandalf, goes forth because he's the only one who can stand between them and their foe. And he gives his life to save the others. That is what the Lord has said. If he is to bring us rest, he has to defeat our great enemy, the sin beneath every sin, the danger behind every danger. He has to defeat it, and that's not a fight, a fight any of us can do on our own. This foe is beyond any of us. And that's why we can rest. He brings rest because he fights the battle for us. Not only that, he wins our biggest battle for us. And how does he do it? Verse 10 says, He shall speak peace to the nations. Just as Jesus stood in the midst of the great storm and spoke in Matthew 4, He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still! And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. We can rest because Jesus fights our battle. He speaks peace and peace happens. Child of God, what is the battle of sin like in your life? Whatever it is like, whatever that battle feels like in your heart, know this. Your Savior, your King, has already gone to battle on your behalf and won. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes that you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with Jesus having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now hang on there, go back, hang on that last verse. So that's the first thing he did. He took the record of sin against you and he canceled it. So if it is guilt that you struggle with, if it is your past that you struggle with, he has nailed it to the cross and canceled that record. But look what else he's done in the next verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Paul speaks of the rulers and authorities like that, he's not talking about senators and kings and congressmen and presidents and whatever. He's talking about the spiritual powers that would accuse and that would try to claim a right to your soul 
and would try to turn you away from faithful service through accusing you and shaming you. And Jesus has put them to shame by conquering them and defeating them and saying, no, sin and death have no power over my people anymore. He's fought that battle for you. You can rest. In our membership vows, when you join our church, we ask you to confess that you receive and rest on Jesus alone for salvation. Don't just receive salvation, but rest in it. And in our membership class, we talk through that at length. What does that mean to not just receive, but to rest the way that God wants you to rest? And we say, you know, we, we talk a lot in many churches about receiving salvation. It means there's nothing I can do to get the salvation that God offers. It's strictly by grace. I didn't earn it. Amen. That is true. But how easy is it for our heart to go on from there and live as if we still have to earn our place in the family of God? I still have to give enough. I still have to say the right things. I still have to believe the right list of things. I have to be at the right kind of church. I have to worship in the right way. I have to please God somehow. I, my family has to look the right way. I have to have family devotions. I have to do this. I have to do that. And we don't rest. We don't rest. God doesn't want you to panic and freak out that he's going to be disappointed in you. Rest. Rest. Because he has fought the battle. He has won the victory. He speaks peace. Listen. Listen when he speaks peace. The final thing that we see when the king returns is that he brings restoration in verse 11. As for you also... Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. The waterless pit is just a, a literal pit in the ground. A big open hole in the ground where you would throw a prisoner and they couldn't climb out. It's a much cheaper way of building prisons, I think. Just dig a big hole in the ground and throw somebody in it. It's a temporary holding place. You would throw prisoners of war in there to keep them from coming out and causing any trouble. You would throw political prisoners in there. The waterless pit. And look where they go. The progression in verse 12. From the waterless pit, they go to a stronghold. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. I love that phrase. Prisoners of hope. Which means those who go captive and oppressed, maintained the hope that they would be delivered. That's hard to do. They didn't give up waiting for their king. What does that look like to be a prisoner of hope? It means as you struggle with sin in your own life and you just can't stop doing what you're doing, that when your spouse speaks angrily to you, you can't help speak angrily back. Or when faced with that temptation, that addiction, whatever it is, you're struggling. You, are, you feel as if you are a prisoner. You are a prisoner of hope. You maintain the hope that you will be delivered. That God will restore you. And the message here is that has already happened. He leads them away from a prison and into a fortress from a place of victimhood and helplessness to a place of security and power. 
He restores them to their rightful place as his people. And then he promises even more in verse 12. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, which is what he did, for example, to Job. After Job had lost everything, we see at the end of his life that Job is restored. Not only what he lost, but God gives him double what he lost. What does that mean for us as we look forward to the Lord's return, that he, he brings restoration? It means that God's vision for you doesn't end with forgiveness. He doesn't just want you to be forgiven. He wants you to flourish. Now be careful how you understand that. Our minds are quick to flee to the material, to the tangible, to what we can see and feel. And so when I say flourish, you might be picturing yourself on a bigger boat, a bigger house, with a nicer car, a more modern phone that you know, doesn't shut down when you don't want it to. And you're picturing a, a bigger bank account. You're picturing not worrying about your finances when I say flourish. But no, that's not what I mean when I say that. What I mean is best understood when I ask you this question. What is it that sin has taken away? Whatever it is that sin has taken away, God intends to restore, to give back what is lost. And not just restore, but to restore abundantly. Sin has taken joy. Sin has taken your dignity by causing you to live in a way that you were never meant to live. Sin has taken away your purpose by deceiving you into living uh, for something that you were never meant to live for, by pursuing something that you were never meant to pursue, by chasing happiness in something that will never make you happy. Sin has taken away your freedom by causing you to be addicted to things. Sin has taken away community by breaking the bonds of fellowship you have with other people. Sin has taken away your very relationship with God. And every good thing that sin has taken away, God restores abundantly. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question that begins it all is, what is the chief end of man? And if I can translate that into modern language, more modern language, it would be something like, what is the meaning of life? Why do we exist? What is the purpose of a human being? How would many people answer that? If we went out on the street and did a survey, what is the purpose of a human being? What kind of answers do you think we would get? You know, some people would say, well, there is no purpose. Life is meaningless. Or our purpose is to just chase all the happiness we can get. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. You know, our purpose is to help other people, to do good, to be the best that we can, to try to make this a less miserable experience for others. But no, according to what we understand Scripture to teach, the Catechism answers the question this way, what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of a human being? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We were made to do those two things, which are really one thing, to show forth the goodness of God, to glorify Him, to show how good God is, and to be joyful, to enjoy God, to find delight in Him. We lost that. Sin took that away in the very beginning. A relationship that was meant to honor God and bring us delight quickly turned into a relationship of shame and dishonor. And we still chase after it. We have as a nation enshrined as one of our inalienable rights the pursuit of happiness, right? 
Pursuit, key word, pursuit. Because we can't promise anyone the attainment of happiness. The best we can promise as a nation is that we'll leave some room for you to chase happiness. But you're probably not going to find it if you're chasing it in the wrong places. Only in God can we find the joy that we were intended to experience. God wants to do more than forgive us. He wants to bring us joy. Let's see this back in Zechariah. Having promised to restore his people and promised to fight for them, look how he describes their restoration in verses 16 and 17 at the end of the chapter. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. This is not about having wealth or power it's about having joy. Receiving again the dignity of being God's people like jewels in the land. Showing how blessed they are. Which points to how good God is. When God restores his people, they have joy. They flourish. We are again united to him. Experiencing the abundance of God with us. I just want to wrap up by looking at how it happens. What is the basis of this? How do, how do we experience this? In verse 11, the Lord says through Zechariah that it, this happens because of the blood of my covenant with you. Why does God rescue you? Why does he give you rest? Why does he restore you to the joy that you were meant to experience? Is it because you follow the rules and you're a good person? Is it because you believe the right list of doctrines and you worship in the proper way with the right songs and the right order of things and the right amount of hand motion and placement, whatever that looks like, I don't know. Is that why God blesses you? Is that why he rescues you and restores you? No, of course not. That would be foolish. It is, as he says, because of the blood of his covenant. A covenant is a commitment made between two parties. To fulfill a promise and a covenant in these days was sealed by a sacrifice, by the blood of a sacrifice. And God had made a covenant with his people, a promise that he would fulfill it. A promise sealed by sacrifice, by blood. A promise that he made to his people that no matter what they did, and in fact, despite what they did, he would save and bless them. A promise confirmed and made effective by the blood of of animal sacrifice, all of which God gave to point forward to the day when he would make a greater sacrifice to seal his covenant with his people. We heard in our assurance of pardon this morning in our worship from Romans 8, these words. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the blood of his covenant. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has given his own son, what would he withhold from us? Who shall bring any charge against God, God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. That's the blood of the covenant. More than that, who was raised, who is at God's right hand, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And that is a rhetorical question, meaning 
you know the answer. The answer is no one. No one, because God has sealed that promise in the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of the blood of that covenant, God will restore what sin has taken. God will rescue his people, and he will lead them to rest. How great is his goodness. How great is his beauty. Therefore, rejoice greatly and shout aloud, your king is coming. And look what he brings when he comes. He brings the rescue that you've needed, the rest that brings peace to the world, and restoration to all that you were meant to enjoy and experience. How great, how great is his goodness. Let us rejoice in that goodness and shake off our guilty fears. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promise to your people, a promise of rescue, a promise of rest, and a promise of restoration. And you have given us these things in Jesus Christ already and have promised them much more fully when you return. Help us to live in light of the good things you've already done. Live as those who have been rescued from our greatest threat. Help us live as those who have attained rest from their labors because you have fought the battle for us. Help us live as those restored, prisoners of hope who are now restored to the stronghold. And as we do so, may we rejoice in the King who is coming again to help us experience these things in all their fullness. We pray these things in his name.